Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Food. I'm your moderator, and my name is Valerie St. Rossi. Today my guest is Diana Kennedy. Since the 1970s, she has been writing meticulously researched cookbooks, and there are nine of them, which have made her the ambassador of the cuisines of Mexico to the English-speaking world. She describes herself as an ethno-gastronomer. The occasion of our conversation today is a new edition of her 1984 book, Nothing Fancy. This was republished in 2016 by the University of Texas Press. It contains family recipes from England, recipes from Mexico, and more from friends far and wide. There are also memories of food from her long and interesting life. We'll talk to her today about this book and about her wide-ranging work in Mexico on her farm, Quinta Diana. Diana Kennedy, welcome to New Books in Food. Oh, thank you very much, Valerie. I'm delighted you're going to be talking about it. Let's see if people would be interested. As I said, it's not going to be a great big bestseller, but people, I hope my fans who are of my other books will buy it and read it and understand a little bit from where I come from. There is a, uh, there are some new things in this book uh, that you added for the the 2016 edition, and they are very wonderful editions. Would you like to talk a little about about those two uh, new chapters? One is Betmoir, and the other is Betmoir um, Ecologique. Well, yes. Um, this is a thing that I always, um, I talked about this in Copenhagen at the wonderful food festival there. Um, and I said to everybody now, um, they've asked me to give a presentation and mine is not going to be very sexy because I want us all to become aware of the waste that goes out of the kitchen. And I did say um, that... Chef, if you invite me into your kitchen, I will not first look at your glamorous food. I will look into your garbage. (laughs) Because that can tell an awful lot of how people buy, whom they buy from, etc., etc. And we've all got to be more careful. You know, we cannot have more and more organic food unless we take care of our environment. And so this is the thing. So I go into, you know, the use of... Um, well, actually, Teflon pans aren't very good for you either. And then the use of uh, a lot of foil um, should be um, not just thrown away, used again. It should be used very carefully, not next to the food. And we've got to think about all that plastic we're throwing away too. It, it is quite shocking that in this world of plenty and excess, we are polluting. And when you read 
and many of you don't because you don't read the same paper as I do. Um, the New York Times or the Guardian, Guardian Weekly have articles on um, on the ecology and what we're doing to this wonderful world in which we live. So um, everybody get with it. Look in your garbage, see what you could reuse and wash. Don't tell the health inspector, of course, if you're in a restaurant. And re- <laughs> and and where you buy your stuff and, and say to your purveyors, you know, you're not going to buy that little package with uh, that white styrofoam stuff and, and plastic. So it's up to the public to be more demanding, I think, and to realize that things are going to cost more, you know. Can you um, tell us the styrofoam scourge that we all experience in Western supermarkets, is that similar in Mexico? Oh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And um, there is not enough um, conscience. Now, may I tell you my bet noir, sophisticated bet noir, because everybody now is doing sous vide, S-O-U-S-V-I-D-E. Now, it is ridiculous for chefs and now home cooks to leave a machine to cook your food. Apart from that, um, you're sending into landfill every time you cook something a very solid plastic bag, having, of course, the plastics invaded your food, and then um, you're putting it out to landfill. Now, sous vide means you're cooking in this plastic bag, for those who don't know it, in hot water. And of course, you can have a superbly cooked bit of fish. But what's going to happen to future generations of of cooks, of young students, culinary students, they're not going to be able to turn out beautifully cooked food if they don't have that darn machine. Um, so that's my wind beat. And I tell you why, because they've just come out with a domestic version. So uh-huh. I'm not like, Go to a restaurant and they say something sous vide. No way. Okay. Just think about it. Think of the end product. And it's quite shocking, I think, that is, that is coming back into vogue and not enough people are complaining. No. These uh, practices in restaurant kitchens, yeah. how, how are chefs reacting to your critique? Oh, I did say what I'm going to tell will send your tocks askew, your top long, you know, a foot high, two foot high. Um, at that meeting, that particular meeting, several came up to me afterwards and said, you know, I never thought of that. And so that was the effect. Um, we have got to be more careful of everything. But the very fact that some of the most important chefs said that to me means it's fine. Now, we've got to get food writers on board. We haven't got enough. There was something in the New York Times done about, um, I think, I didn't read it myself, um, but on the ecology in the kitchen. But it's something that I've stressed. And I gave this as a theme many years ago when I was scholar in residence for the IACP in San Antonio. Somebody railroaded it, some, uh, somebody from a university and took off on agriculture. And I wanted to say no. You know, um, that wonderful chef in Chicago, uh, what was his name? Charlie Potter. Yeah. 
Charlie Trotter, late Charlie Trotter, yes. was the first one, I think, to be aware of this and had a green kitchen. And then um, Chris Kump's, um, Christopher, uh, Peter Kump's son, Christopher Kump, on yes. the West Coast, was also onto this and had a solar refrigeration, things like that. So we've all got to get with it. And you Look what's happening to the world. Look what's happening to space travel. Look what's happening around. Isn't it high time we got within the kitchen? You know, of course, I hate plastic stirrers. And, of course, oh, these these um, inspectors, you know, in the health inspectors want us to go plastic Shopping boards, oh my God, they're awful. They blunt your knives. They're they're horrible. They hold more germs, I swear, in the holes of the, in the little perforations in the plastic than any wooden um, chopping board has. Is that the chopping true? boards have been used for hundreds and hundreds of years? Is that true? Do you suppose because you can clean wood more efficiently than you can clean plastic? Oh, well, I think so, yes. And the aesthetics, too, you know, that horrible white thing in the kitchen. Yes, indeed. And, and the thump with your knife, you know, your best chef's knife on it. And and, um, and it's ridiculous. And to think that, um, you know, what, whatever it is, anyhow, I'm, I think we've got to get back to natural materials and not use all the stuff we use in our water. <laughs> Um, we don't need now in um, my house um, it's totally ecological and everything is washed with um, big soap you know just an ordinary cheap soap mm-hmm. and uh, and in cold water because uh, my helpers don't like washing up in hot water um, but uh, so far um, I haven't died of anything terrible and nor have my guests um, <laughs> <laughs> so um, and the plastic bags I wash and hang out to dry and I take them back to the market the next day and saying very loudly, you know, use my recycled bags. Um, <laughs> and again, you you look at, um, oh, this one of the bet noir was, you're supposed to be baking them a take. A potato, and you're wrapping it in foil, and you're steaming it. You're not baking it. You haven't got that lovely, crusty, leathery skin. Now, of course, if you've got false teeth, it might prove a problem. But you know, most of us don't have false teeth, and, and we want that the, the vitamins under that skin and some different flavors and textures. You know, just think about it. Um, oh, another thing. Oh my God, that kosher salt. Who are Oh, wants to use now. You you do say read what I said about that. No, they were not my words. They were words written in a book, wonderful book called Salted, and it's Mark Mark Bittman, not Bitterman, not uh, Mark Bitterman, not Bitman, and not Bitman of the New York Times. Mark Bitterman, and it's a very very good book on the different salts of the world, and. What he says, and I quote him in my book, and it's okay for roadkill, but you know, everybody, everybody wants to put their hands in that kosher salt. And I don't know. And of course, the, so the copy editors have got with it, and every magazine is using canola oil and this kosher salt. And I should think they've got shares in the factories or something. Um, but all these things, we've got to get out of our, out of our thing. Think about it. 
taste different salts. Now, of course, Mexico has wonderful sea salts from different parts of Mexico. Unfortunately, it's not generally exported to um, to the United States. And if it would, it'd be a lot cheaper than the fabulous molten salt from um, uh, from England or the um, uh, the uh, the cell um, from uh, from France. But but look for it. And I always tell everybody who's visiting Mexico, go back with a whole bag of salt. It's only eight pesos a kilo. <laughs> so, but try things. Try the difference. You see, I want to, to try the difference, not just follow a recipe as it. You know, get your best flavors into your food. Well, it's clear that what you are advocating is that people – Think when they're, while they're in the kitchen. Don't be um, without awareness of your materials, your tools, your basic ingredients like salt. Could you say what it is about uh, what it is about kosher salt? It's an industrial salt, isn't it? Well, it's all the, you see what he says, he's, he's got it scientifically, he's taken all the, the good elements out, and he did say it's um, applauding or applauding the, um, uh, something that isn't true, isn't natural. So think about it. Um, mm. I, you know why I first um, went against it? Because um, when I was living in New York, I was, I love um, corned beef and, and corned tongue in particular. Oh, it's marvelous. And I was doing that, and it failed. And I was doing it with kosher salt, and it failed. So um, I said, uh-oh. And then finally, many, many years later, I find that um, Mark Bitterman is um, uh, telling it as it is. So think about it. Don't just get all these things just because the food magazine tells you to. Just think about it. Try things. You know? the, uh, the, the best cooks are the people who cook in their homes traditionally following what they learned from the grandmothers, what they learned from their aunts. And the, this knowledge and this kind of wisdom and common sense is hard to tap yeah. when a, a society becomes sophisticated. Could you talk a little about that? Well, yes, I think it is, and people's lives have changed, and they have very small kitchens, and they don't want to be, if they've got a job and everybody's working in the family, they have to be practical about it, but there are some things that you could still adjust to. Now, for instance, a bread recipe, I think trying to reproduce bread is one of the most difficult things because you're dealing with lots of elements. You're dealing with the yeast. I use fresh yeast. I'd never use dried yeast. You don't know what your flour, how your flour has been treated, and um, and the water too will make a difference. And the day, the, depending how moist the atmosphere is, so um, I think that's one of the most difficult things to do. Um, you make it. You'll make some bread, and it'll be perfectly edible, but you won't be able to reproduce exactly what a, a baguette that you had in Paris, um, or certainly the croissant you had in Paris. Oh. Yeah, where are the good croissant makers? They're all making flaky pastry things. Um, because I'm a cook. Let's face it, 
I cook everything, everything in my kitchen, the vinegars, uh, the jams, the marmalades, everything is cooked from scratch. Now, I suppose partly because I can't buy it, but partly because I prefer to um, use the several oranges on my land, for instance. It, they're great at the moment. I've just done 14 pounds of several orange marmalades. Oh, lovely. Yeah, no, no. Breakfast is not breakfast in England if you don't have several orange marmalade. Um, so that's sitting with its with its labels on, and unfortunately, friends of mine love it so much, so I have to make several batches while the oranges are in their prime, and they're picked from the tree and immediately made into the marmalade, and or a a drink too into a a fruit drink with very little brown sugar in it, very little, and that's the most healthy. A fruit drink you can have. It was very interesting. There was a, a wonderful old lady in Sitakra, she doesn't exist anymore. And I took her some of my, um, my marmalade actually of, of, um, several oranges and she threw up her hands in so happy. And she said, Oh, paralabilis, paralabilis means very good for the gallbladder. So mm. <laughs> isn't that interesting? Because the uh, several orange apparently and its derivatives are good for the gallbladder. So, um, you know, there, there we go. Um, it's all sorts of interesting things happen in my life. And as I say, the thing is to cook all the time, everything. It's really the only teacher there is. Yes. My- and going back to what you said in the beginning about uh, cooking is about making mistakes. Oh, yeah. Learning from them. But since you were speaking about bread baking, I noted something in one of your introductory mm. recipes to uh, yeast breads that I wanted to ask you. You you mention warming a flour before you make bread. Now, I've never heard that before. Can you oh, yes, why? I think. I think even Julia does that. Never use your bread cold out of the refrigerator, all right? Um, you want it to be dry and slightly warm, and that'll, that'll help the yeast along. Now, ah, a tip. That, that's, that seems logical. Yeah, but there's a tip. If you've got, always keep in your refrigerator in the lower drawer about two pounds of flour have it cold. Now, if you have a severe burn, you the best thing you can do is to put that cold flour on the burn. So I always have uh, a two-pound bag of flour uh, in the lower part of my fridge and tell my helpers, here it is now, don't forget, there's aloe vera outside to help the curing page, but when you burn, slap on all this cold flour. So, so there's one you... There's one used for cold flour, but not for bread. Okay. I see. So it's the it's the the burn bag of flour. Exactly. Yes. Excellent. And so somebody's forgotten and put it into the the normal flour. Uh, yeah. But you know, I must say that uh, when I see people doing a, a pie crust or something in the cuisine art, I mean, I love a cuisine art. It's got great things, but not for that. You've got to. Feel the texture. And notably, everybody laughs about English food, of course. But, you know, um, we had the most varied menus. 
uh, we had no money. Uh, where it was, well, not poor, but you know, my mother had to be careful, and she was very much um, a follower of the um, the old cookbooks. But we were brought up making four tons of pastry. I mean, there was short crust, there was dummy ferte, there was ferte, there was shoe pastry, and and then there was a hot water pastry with them, um, uh, you know, that lovely greasy. Marvellous pastry for the English pork pies. Nobody makes a pork pie like England. I mean, they're more sophisticated in France, but the English pork pies with that wonderful, crusty pastry made with lard. Now, lard, make your own lard, for goodness sake. You don't want all that white stuff you get in the supermarket. And so, you know, it's okay, it's time-consuming, but you make a batch and you keep it, and it keeps for two years. Um and you've got it there ready. You see, I think the great thing about um, um, having a successful kitchen is you've got things already made and stored. And some things will store, some things don't store. Um, and that's what you uh, describe in your book. You do say how to make lard, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. It's I mean, there in both in both versions, yeah. the original and the new one. And you try, and oh my God. People say, oh, well, these refried beans done with lard. Well, if they're not, I'm not going to eat them. You know, you're only absorbing a little bit. If it's a religious thing, okay, well, you get away with it. But, I mean, forget it. Let's get this cholesterol thing straight. Uh, The latest thing on women's cholesterol, uh, women uh, with high cholesterol live longer. Now, that came out last year. Everybody, that shocked the medical, you know. The the medical establishment, the roots, and everybody, every everybody. Because I eat lard, you know. I mean, my tomatoes are made with lard. My food, but you don't eat that much, you know. And always in my pastry, my pie crust pastry was my mother's recipe. Okay, so it's a pound of flour and it's half a pound of fat. No more. It's not a glamorous thing. It's just a pie pastry, but it's delicious. But with a good butter. I put two tablespoons of lard, and it just gives it that little finish of texture that is so good. So it's the texture of lard that cannot that, be reprodu- reproduced. Yeah, because it, it's much. Um, it gives a much um, uh, somehow short um, thing to the to the pastry, you know. And butter matters too. Oh my goodness! Somebody gave me two kilos of butter from Querétaro in the central Mexico from a cheesemaker who makes butter, mm-hmm. and I want you to know the texture of that pastry. Because I, I always have pastry ready in the fridge for for making a quiche or whatever, and um, and the texture of that pastry with that butter. I mean, this natural butter, and of course a touch of lard was so sensational that I sort of held it in my taste memory forever my goodness i have a question to ask you since we're talking about pastry you mentioned that one should always use a metal spoon for pastry i have Uh, never heard that before why (laughs) well because it's cold um now i have to laughing you when the school i went to I, i got a scholarship to a very fancy school 
I couldn't run otherwise. And um, they had cooking classes. And I nearly failed one of my cooking tests because I was caught using a wooden spoon for my pastry. No, when you were doing your good pie paint, let's say pie crust, okay? Um, you want everything cold. You want your, your water cold. You want your bowl cold. And then you don't want to put in a wooden spoon. You've got to put in a, um, a metal spoon. It'll be cold. <laughs> I see. But I remember that from my childhood. I'd never forget that. I mean, a silly way to lose it, to lose points on your cooking test, right? And these are the things that you learn from from home cooks. Yes, you you, you were lucky enough to be taught it in school. But generally, someone learned that going back much further. Oh yeah. From my mother, too. She always used to use metal spoon. But I never thought about it in, in a, a cooking test, you know, at school. Uh, see, I learned a lot from my mother because, um, as I said, she taught school. She, um, But everything, and especially if you read the chapter on Christmas, you know, from a very, very early age, we were all called in to help sort the dried fruit. And let's face it, we had raisins. White raisins, you call it. We called it um, uh, we called it sultanas and currants, and then we had muscat raisins, and uh, so we had to take the seeds out of the muscats, and we had to prepare all this fruit, and cut up the candied peel, and so very early age we had our hands in the food, right? It is about touching, isn't it? And your hands yeah. become full of wisdom, and this yes. is, this is probably what doesn't exist in modern kitchens and with lots of equipment, things so you don't get dirty, the idea of not getting dirty. Yeah. I don't know where that came from. Do you? That's so, so silly, isn't it? It's so silly. <laughs> I, no. I would like to ask you about um, Mexican food for a moment. Uh, there could be a million questions, but I have one, which is, when you first began your research and writing about Mexican food for uh, English-speaking readers, what were the misconceptions about Mexican food that people possessed? Well, first of all, it's all hot. And also, the um, generally, the use of chilies um, in the U.S. is uh, the chefs put too much, too, too much picante. And you realize that every chili has a flavor. So you use it in different ways. And that, by the way, I wish everybody who started Mexican cooking would buy my book, My Mexican Kitchen uh, Techniques and Ingredients, because um, there it clarifies the chilies, because some of the some of the chefs in cooking get it all wrong. They get the um, morita instead of uh, chipotle mora. And um, that also gives some of the aromatic herbs that are used. A lot of aromatic herbs are used in, in Mexican in food, depending on which area of Mexico you are. And, of course, pumpkin seeds are used, and the delicious pipian, not a molly, but a pipian, the base of the um, of the sauce in itself uh, would be a toasted and ground pumpkin seeds. And it's absolutely delicious. So all these things, um, it's very exciting um, to me uh, to have traveled as I have traveled. 
Um, the Oaxaca book took 14 years of research and writing and cooking. Um, and it is, nobody's done it. And um, no, somebody is plagiarizing it. That um, awful Fiden book, Mexico the Cookbook. Oh, she's really? got yeah, she's got 14 of my recipes. Now, um, it's not fair. You see, um, I know there's all this polemic about uh, where recipes belong, but nobody has done the research. Nobody sat in one recipe she's got of mine, and they actually used it, Fiden used it in their publicity. It was so silly. Oh, uh, was when I had traveled for eight hours over the mountains and sitting in a kitchen that they allowed me to sit in and watch them make a certain type of bean tamale. So uh, it takes hours. I was there for hours while everything was done. And, of course, the son-in-law comes in and he says, um, by the way, I've brought you to a try of the barbacoa of res, of beef, that I make every weekend and sell in the market. And he oh. gave me that recipe. And she's got me that recipe. And nobody in Fiden on that 600 recipes, there's not one credit given. Uh, so it's, it's infuriating because um, these recipes have never been, many of them have absolutely never, ever been published. I did the original research. I used all the money I had on these trips in those 14 years. And to find it, in, uh, and of course, the, the editors of, are in Fiden are to be blamed because they have not found out where the recipes come from. And I gather they do uh, what they call a Bible of every every country's food. And some of them, I'm told, are pretty awful of the other kinds. But anyhow, um, I have to say this because... Um, it is so um, annoying to me to have we made these wonderful trips. I just, nobody knows the wonderful education I've had driving myself in my truck with my sleeping bag and my cot, uh, because I never know where I was going to sleep, uh, up in the mountains and, and learning from these women. And they were so generous and willing to share because they were so interested that somebody wanted to know how they dealt with their ingredients, how at what point the masa was right for the tamales and all this sort of thing. So it's been years of hard work, immensely hard work, but enormously satisfying. I'm sure that wherever you go, what you learn is the people have mastered every ingredient that's mm. local, and they are the experts on the use and the variety of uses. Right, right, which, of course, some of the younger chefs have never done. So there are some misalliances um, of the food. Now, they think I'm terribly critical, but I say, you know, go back and learn your basic things. Um, Did it, you... Did you yeah. find it um, unusual to create a cookbook, nothing fancy, which wasn't strictly about Mexican food? Well, it was my editor. You know, I have had the most wonderful editor, Frances McCulloch, uh, from Cuisines Mexico, and now she helped me with um, sorting out the new nothing fancy. And she is the greatest researcher I've ever known. She knows what's around you. It's fabulous. And she told me to write it. She said, I know you've got these recipes from your family um, and from friends. And I've tried all sorts of exotic things in your house. Um, 
please write. So she prompted him to write. Now, nobody ever, no, okay, all the bakers on board, do your own hot cross buns. That's the most fabulous recipe you'll ever come across. And the hot cross buns in the U.S. are awful. And many of them in England are, but you do your own. Okay, you've got three risings. You've got all sorts of dinner things to do that's going to drive you mad. But do it. Because, oh, God, the flow. I'm just waiting. My oven gave up the ghost, and I've got a new oven. And so I'm just waiting. I can't wait to do my hot cross buns and, and, um, and have them with tea in the afternoon. That sounds absolutely divine. I, uh, I think I might want to be there when they come out of the oven. Yes. <laughs> what do they keep? How do they keep? They, you know, a good... Um, well-made dough of any, especially of that type, slightly sweetened, um, improves in flavor and um, always can be revived in a hot oven or dip it very quickly in milk in a hot oven. So it, it um, you know, you don't always have to have it straight out of the oven, but it is divine because of the smell of all the spices. And then um, citron peel. I use in those. Now, citron peel, I have citrons in my orchard, which is quite important. Yes, yeah. And um, so I make my own citron peel and um, angelica. I've got some angelica because all these flavors people are forgetting. And uh, just add these actual touches that I remember from my childhood. It's absolutely true, isn't it? And I think that the function of of um, candied fruits, yeah, uh, all, always worked in uh, worked as a as an element of sweetness mm-hmm. when sugar was expensive. Yeah, and texture too. They, they nice bite through it when you're you know going into that doughy mass, and then you've got a little texture of a a, a good raisin. So I quite agree. It's um. It all adds to the spice of life in cooking. You know, you don't want to simplify some things. And there are these subtle flavors that you want to preserve. And I do it. I, I cook um, the stuff that my mother did. Not all the stuff. And I, let's face it. I hated her rabbit, rabbit stew, but it was the cheapest thing in the market. And um, uh, But nevertheless, um, some of the things, especially the doughy things, and as I say, her pie crust and all that, desserts, and oh, and you've got to, if you like gingerbread, now, do try that sticky gingerbread in my recipe. It came from a friend years and years ago when I was living in Scotland, and it sinks in the middle, don't worry, it's gooey, it's fabulous, absolutely fabulous, but use um, uh, the Tatum Lyle's um, golden syrup first and then their uh, treacle because that will give it the right texture rather than the thinner syrups that you have. I read somewhere that gingerbreads always sink in the middle. Oh, really? And that's interesting. Well, I've seen a lot that don't because people put enough pumping up baking powder into it. But these, this is so damp and sticky and gooey that, mm. um, oh, my God, it's just divine. Yeah. And that's true, of course. I, I believe that you have cooking courses at your farm. Is that correct? Well, it's hardly a farm. I call it a, a quinta because it's mostly fruit and vegetables. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, I have bees, I have chickens, uh, all organic eggs, everything like that. Um, I have been doing boot camp 
at one ah. first I used to do it with um, uh, Marilyn Townsend's and then I'd do it on my own now uh, for some financial reasons it all got screwed up last time yes and it's fun eight people come and they stay at a lovely lovely little hotel near me and they come and we work for six hours um, and everybody works and go right through, oh, we make the moles, but we make chorizos and um, tamales and all sorts of things. Um, it's terribly hard work, um, but uh, it's, it's just wonderful to see people um, learning the processes, the, um, the technical things and the techniques that bring out flavor. Now, to my mind, there's, there's a basic thing that people don't do, and that is pay attention to the way that you are preparing your basic ingredients. That's going to take all the difference in the world. But in Mexico, you have to toast the chilies sometimes, you have to soak them, you have to toast the seeds or um, something, to, and you have to asar or, or char your tomatoes, um, cook char, cook them, and that makes all the difference to the flavor of food. And what interests me is um, this, the difference between great flavors. And not then people, some people maybe have too many drinks and then go through a meal and don't notice. No, I will criticize things, but I also, if there's something great on a menu, I will send a message back to the kitchen because they don't know if anybody is noticing the subtleties of their good food. Hmm. Yeah. It's interesting what you say about uh, how different a tom tomato can taste. Uh, I think we just slice them and eat them by and large in the West, isn't that? Well, I think it's pretty awful if you're going to use those Romans. They're horrible. I'd never have a salad with the Romans. You wait till the heirlooms come here. If you've got a garden, for goodness sake, um, so um, uh, plant them because there's nothing like a great tomato um, I in Mexico they're all using these plump tomatoes and uh, they call them solidettes and it's absolutely appalling um, now unfortunately um, my crop was ruined by early rains last year but what I do when I get a crop is to uh, weigh batches um, and then asar them. They say asar, putting on a comal until they're mushy and slightly charred. And then I, so then I freeze them ready for the next year. Um, this year they're just about to come in my first tomatoes. And so, um, we haven't had any rain. We're in a dry, drought, which is very sad, but it's very good for the tomatoes and it's very bad for the corn. So, um, you can't bend it. Anybody who doesn't believe in, climate change, or to just go and hide themselves away, put themselves into a, they probably live in air-conditioned rooms. Climate change is affecting everything. The, everything. Can you uh, describe what, what kind of climatic adjustments, and I mean in, in, with respect to food, that you had to make when you moved to Mexico from the very different climate of uh, Europe and England in particular. And, Scott, and uh, I was in Canada, of course, before I went to Mexico. Oh. Um, 
Well, no, I think you learn what the local people do. If there's a good good cooks in your area, you try and cook with them, or try you and you learn from them. Now, the only thing you have to learn here, well, for in the Mexico City where I first lived, because my husband was, a, uh, as you know, journalist, New York Times, um, was to adjust cooking times at a high altitude. Uh, things will take much longer to cook because the boiling point is much um, lower. So um, you have to take care. I did find, too, that uh, the amount of sugar was slightly adjusted, but I learned, I followed a recipe the first time, I and mean, the second time then I'd, I'd learned, you know. And, of course, beans, you want young beans. You know, the greatest thing for cooking your beans, if you're not in Mexico, is a crock pot. You'll never burn your beans, and they'll have that wonderful wafting smell all night through your house. And um, so I do recommend the crock pot for beans. Isn't that wonderful? Anything else that we should know? How about epazote? Uh, well, that's very much an acquired taste, but you uh, you have to use it. In black beans, you have to use it. There's certain things you have to use it. Get used to it. Um, and it's a pungent wonderful flavor that is so Mexican. Now, I say so Mexican, it's not used and liked in the north of Mexico. It's used more as a tea and to as a, uh, a vermifuge um, as a, and for gas. Uh, but mm. in the southern part of Mexico, more so. Now, obviously there are exceptions, but it is used um as I say, in black beans, not in uh, other beans, gen generally speaking. And then in a, a real quesadilla, which is a raw, raw uh, a tortilla, and a bit of cheese, a strip of chili poblano, and a few leaves of epazote. That was the way I first learned to eat a quesadilla, cooked, not fried, and cooked on a comal, a raw masa with those things in it. Um, and that was the most distinctive flavor. And uh, also, it's beautiful have a plant, um, doesn't like a lot of water. Um, and then, if you have ants in the house, you um, crush it and throw it down. Um, and a tea, as I say, if you're sort of gassy after your beans, make a tisane out of it. And and there it is. Use it in fresh. Use it fresh. But it's a, it's wonderful herb. Oh, my God. Anybody don't like, doesn't like it, even come to dinner. <laughs> I, I do see it in dried packets. Is it all right to use no, it dried? No, no. Dried isn't the same. If you're going to do a, a tea, it's okay, but uh, not for using. No, you need it fresh. You really do need it fresh. Well, as you were describing the difference between using this herb in the south and in the north of Mexico, it made me think about uh, how culturally southern, southern style of cuisines and northern style of cuisines has always had this little, oh, we don't eat that, they eat that down south. Like uh, in Europe, garlic is considered southern, mm -hmm. southern Europe and not northern <laughs> Europe. And... Right. and um, uh, when I think of cooking in America, you know, lots of fried things mm. is considered more Southern-style cooking. And in the North, it's it's not at all the same. And it's mm. what's interesting in your description is that this also pertains in Mexico. And there are, yes. there are quite 
quite the same kind of, we don't do that, we do this. Right. They do that, we don't do it. Are there yeah. other, other, other ingredients that are mark, markedly limited in their use Yes, wheat sacrati or the fungus on the corn. Mm -hmm. Some areas, very few areas don't use it. Mm -hmm. And then in only one area in Mexico, no, so two remote areas, they use it dried. It dries on the plant. And then when they put it into, it's in my book. Um, Which book is it in? Oh, I don't know which book it's in. Um, Oh, I think it's My Mexico. In My Mexico. An Odyssey Culinaria. Um, Oh, by the way, that same woman is following my chefs around, my cooks around in a TV program. Oh, no. Um, That book is so full of fascinating things. You should buy it. You really should buy it. Um, That it's very interesting that in one place in Tlaxcala, the state of Tlaxcala, and I believe that I haven't been up there in part of Nayarit, um, they use this dry, uh, dry wheat tlacoche. It makes a powder and it goes in with dark chilies and a sort of, it's like a rather light mole because it doesn't have almonds and raisins and all the stuff in. And it's, it's just a haunting flavor. It's just wonderful. And um, is it, is it possible to get that outside of Mexico? No, 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 I doubt it. I think the, uh, the border people would have a fit if it just came and They'd probably think it's some sort of colored marijuana or something, you know. Who knows, you know. Um, uh, so there are some things. And, of course, the different types of chilies that there are in Mexico, which is so fascinating. Again, I talk about them in Ingredients and Techniques. It's a very, very important book. Not enough people are buying it. This is um, the Mexican Kitchen, My Mexican Kitchen? My Mexican Kitchen, right, right. Um, because um, it does clarify the um, techniques, certain techniques. And... Um, I, I just think that you can get an awful lot from it anyway. Uh, learning about the aromatic herbs, I think, this is very, very important. Now, for instance, there's one thing. In my pantry, I have nine types of what they call oregano. Now, nine. Yeah, nine types. Um, and there are more because everywhere you go, there's the same um, type of plant. No, not always. Um there's, a, there's an exception to this, but it's a type of plant that grows in a different way in different climates and different things. So that is collected and used as oregano and not the, the general um, oregano that you use. And it's used always dried, not fresh. Interesting. Now, um, there's something that you mentioned in... Uh, nothing fancy that I found surprising because I was so ignorant of it. You said that in Mexico, salsa is not a sauce, it's a condiment. So well, we, we've got it all wrong. No, it's the word salsa is misused. Ah. Um, when you say salsa, you do mean like a salsa in a container on the table and used as a condiment, okay? Mm -hmm. You may open your quesadilla and put some salsa in it. But when you're talking about a whole dish, like a mole, for instance, that's not a salsa, okay? 
And there are many, many dishes like that wherever you go using local chilies. And that one being called a salsa. The salsa is, as I say, a, a separate uh, use of chilies or tomatoes or locusts on the table. And you use to cook. If you have a, a tostada, maybe you want a bit more salsa on it. But that's mm. the use of the word. But the, the word is very, very loosely and badly used, usually. I see, I, yeah. I see what you mean. Um, we we are not well informed in so many of the aspects of Mexican cooking. I, I'm very curious to know, uh, I know that your books are translated into Spanish. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to know what other translations have been made? Um, I don't know. There was a funny little thing of the of the tortilla book in Dutch, of all things, that really? uh, yeah, died out. Um, no, and I think the reason there was going to be something in German, but I think when the translators come across all these plants that people can't buy, um, I think that that comes to a dead haunt. Um, now maybe there there are maybe I'm mistaken maybe there are but it's a very very difficult thing to translate um, something relying on these local ingredients that they can't use they don't know what it smells or tastes like so I think that there is a problem there I suppose the fact that the United States and Mexico has a border that's uh, 1989 miles long yeah. makes us the best audience for Mexican food. Yes, but um, I I say this um, when I go into the uh, local markets, especially um, where there's a heavy um, Mexican population, um, as some of the chilies are mislabeled, um, uh, the the range of ingredients is not that great because they're catering to where those immigrants came from. Ah. So that matters a lot. I remember this absolutely huge one in St. Louis, Missouri. Huge, huge market. But it was rather disappointing because um, it depends. Now, one of the best is the La Fiesta market in um, um Fiesta, it's called, not La Fiesta, it's Fiesta Market in Austin. Now, they used to have one uh, in, in um, not in, in Dallas or Fort Worth, I can't remember, and they used to have one in San Antonio, and it no longer exists. I mean, I could cry because they brought in, um, and in February there would be the Naranja Agria. They had, then they had special um, wrappings, not... Um, corn husk for certain tamales and it really was and still is the one in Austin still is about the best now not only that of course but they have aisles like Great Britain and you can buy all the wonderful teas and the, the stuff um, and India and things like that but their Mexican section generally is much more wide than any other uh, supermarket well I would like to ask you now about two things. First, uh, your collection, your notes, and your uh, studies in botany mm. are being um, 
are being collected. I believe they're being digitized. Is it by the National Autonomous University of Mexico? No. Um, I, it is uh, something called Cornabio, and it's the National Commission for the studying the use and conservation of the biodiversity of Mexico. Now, Mexico has gone from eight in uh, up to four, the fourth country with the biggest biodiversity in the world. And they, an ex-governor one of the university, a wonderful man, Jose Sorocan, um, with another scientist, started this um, many years ago. Well, I don't know, probably about 20 years ago. And it is uh, the government, I think, give them some money for it. Um, and they... Um, decided that um, what I have done in my books and uh, the markets I've studied and photographed were of value. Um, so they digitalized my slides. Now, now of course, I'm on, um, uh, I got a digital camera, but I didn't have those hundreds of slides. Then scanned the notes from my travel books and took certain recipes from my books that um, actually um, clarified the use of a certain plant. Now, it's a great, great honor, and um, I am delighted. And they actually gave me my own website, so there's a página web, as they call it, Diana Kennedy, within Cornabio. Oh, um, really? Yes. And um, it, it, now, unfortunately, it's not in English. Um, I'm hoping that they could come up with some uh, thing to put it in English because it, it has to be in English. It's in Spanish at the moment. Um, so it's a, it's a very great honor. Now, there are a lot of things, say, on my computer. I have about 1,500 other photos that haven't been yet uh, um, uh, downloaded and put into their stuff. Um, so um, it, it is very exciting to me to know that what I did for purely interest, because I've never made money, never had money, um, I did as purely interest and excitement and adventure has been of use. Now, that to me is the greatest thing. And so there it is, a lot of my stuff, not all, but a lot. At the moment, too, I'm trying to find a repository for um, for my papers and things when I die. Um, I'm 94 and I hope I can make it to 100. I'm trying to get there. Um, uh, I've, got, I've got a driving license to 100, so I better use it. Um, and so um, my all my papers and stuff, my library, um, Radcliffe seemed to be very iffy about it. That's where it should go because of the greatest... Uh, a collection of culinary writings of people in the U.S. Um, and, of course, I started off in the U.S. Uh, doing my stuff, my culinary, Mexican culinary stuff. Um, but at the, at the moment, I'm working on it because it has to be there for other people who are not unfortunate enough to have seen Mexico. I've seen it. You know, I have driven from Chihuahua down to Yucatan, not once, hundreds of times, alone, stopping, picking plants, asking, uh, taking photos in markets and things like that. So it should in some way be, um, be you know, saved. 
uh, because things are changing. Tastes are changing. Chilies are tasting. You know, they're bringing in chilies, guajillos, which is shocking, shocking the people in Mexico are doing this, bringing in chilies, um, decent uh, guajillos from um, China. Then they're smaller. They're is not. So? Yes, China and even Peru. And they're not the same. And they haven't got the same pungent flavor as those from Zacatecas, where there are several types of that chili. Um, so I'm always fighting. Um, but la- unfortunately, nobody else has um, taken up seriously enough. Um, but that's true. Because, you know, it's an awful bore for people to hear these old ladies saying, oh, my God, it's not as it used to be. But it isn't. I mean, the flavors aren't the same. Um and um, and I know it's a bore, and you, one shouldn't do it too often. But I have to when I have a public platform like yours. Thank you very much uh, to say these things, uh, things that do preoccupy. Another thing that does really are all the new seeds. Now, the new seeds I was told by somebody coming mostly out of Holland, um, providing they are producing fruits and vegetables that are larger, shinier, more colorful. But where's the flavor? There's no flavor. So we've got to preserve our authentic stuff, the wild stuff, the stuff that is around in the the remote corners that people have, you know, a little bit of land where there's a apple tree that's been there for, for well, after the Spaniards came, I suppose. Um, but still, we have to... Um, preserve all these things and try things and eat things. Be critical, but stop and think what you're eating. Don't just gollop things down, you know. Well, thinking crit- is key, isn't it? Yes, yes. Thinking and tra- and discussing things and criticizing, and but constructive criticism. You, know, you can't, I can't criticize a dish unless I can tell them where they went wrong or where they did not. Do they? And yes, I'm sorry, everybody, but you know, I've been 60 years cooking here and I cook every day and my, my kitchen is a living place. Um, I mean, my, my old artists, my fruit paste, my vinegars, my breads, everything's made here. And, um, it's very tiring, I might tell you sometimes, but nevertheless, it's, it's an education to, um, how you use things in a different way and how you preserve flavor. So. I know that you are the author of many books, but I think it's time for another book. Is there another book in the pipeline? Um, No. um, I will help uh, some states do their own cookbooks, which have been either appallingly done or not done at all, because I took now from Oaxaca al gusto, which is a major work. Nobody's done it. I divide, Everybody knows Oaxaca. Oh, they go to Oaxaca. They know the, the, the food in Oaxaca, the Valley of Oaxaca. But they don't even realize that Oaxaca is in 11 different parts, at least. There are others. But I've divided that book into 11 because in each of those regions, there are specialties. There's a separate chili. There are separate ingredients used. And so... It is my pride and joy, Oaxaca al gusto, especially the English version, which Texas Press have have published, are still publishing. The Spanish version, from uh, I didn't have strict control of some of the photos, so I did change them, some of them, for the English version. Um, But it is anybody 
who thinks they know Oaxaca and just Oaxaca, go and look at this book. Um, because as I said, 14 years and trying to get to the research and, and come back and cook, but also persuade publishers to publish it in its entirety and not try and uh, cut it up or, you know. Yes, indeed. Uh, yeah, exactly. So I don't think so. Cookbook, I don't think so. Um, I will help other states do it because, oh, I was going to say, Oaxaca I based on what I consider the only great book of a state, a, a state in Mexico, and it was on Veracruz, because people who did that book knew what they were doing. Now, there are other books done in other states, but it's all by fancy people who, you know, wanted to jazz it up. But um, I based it on that because that was divided into the different areas of Veracruz. There are many, many different geographical areas. And so I based my book, Mojaca, on that. And now it turned out to be 11 areas. So it's a heavy book, but didn't need more of them. I mean, it's um, something to be had and treasured and looked at and digested. Because here are these wonderful things that are being preserved by people way up in the mountains in probably more isolated places. And it's, so it's very exciting. And even when I look through it myself, I get excited because I remember all those, all those trips I made. What, what is um, uh, the Oaxaca book? It's Oaxaca Augusto, correct? Mm. Yeah, right. Uh, and it's uh, available from University of Texas Press, mm -hmm. just as the new edition of Nothing Fancy, uh, which is just not even a year old. Uh, also from University of Texas Press. I would and like my to... Mexico. My Mexico. They've also got my Mexico. I see. I would I'm like to invite you to speak to us for the next five hours. But I know that you have things to do in the kitchen, I imagine. I <laughs> wonder if you would give us a closing salvo because it has been a delight to provide you with a platform and you will always have a platform here, I assure you. So, could you give well, us a give us a a thought to take away? Well, I mean, I have to say, buy my books and study them, and, and when you go to the supermarket, take it with you and make sure you're buying the right thing. Because unfortunately, what's happening? Go back to that chili guajillo. Um, What's happening is they're importing from Mexico and it's wrongly labeled. So nobody's going, nobody in future, I uh, tell culinary, I talk to a lot of culinary students, I tell them this, you've got to go back, get the real ones from Zacatecas, make a sauce, learn what those flavors are before you use the others, right? So, uh, but that's getting a little esoteric. You know, I am uh, going into it, I think, probably far more deeply than people would like. And, and there are some of them who are absolutely irritated by my English accent. I'm sorry, I apologize. I mean, my thing is, learn more about it. And when you travel to Mexico, go to the markets um, and learn and ask how, how your Spanish is, but try all the local flavors of that area, because remember, they're all different. And it sounds to me like one of your uh, one of your suggestions is also to become a little better at Spanish. Well, yes, yeah, that, that certainly helps, so that you can 
talk, but they're very kind. You know, they're not like the French. If you go to Paris and try to speak them, they can be very snooty. But um, they're very kind if you try and see and and talk slowly. Uh, they respond very beautifully. Um, they're very kind. They sound like the best neighbors, don't they? Yes, I know. And this U.S. with this two thousand, almost let's say two thousand miles border, is going to suffer. Now we know politically, and it's so sad. Um, it's, we, it's yeah. We will you use know. your books to yeah. volley over whatever does or does not come to pass. I I want to say once again that the new edition of Nothing Fancy was issued in 2016 by the University of Texas Press. Its author, Diana Kennedy, has honored us with so many thoughts and, and descriptions of her activities and her pursuit of truly um, uh, the authentic and the genuine in the cuisines of Mexico. I want to thank you so much for being our guest And please come back again with a new book. We would love to speak to you. Oh, Valerie, thank you so much for giving me all this time to expound on the things that I'm passionate about. But I did want to say that it was chosen by the Los Angeles Times as the book of the week a few months ago. So, so congratulations on that, and we shall all run out and get our copy. So for yeah. New Books and Food, I want to say once again, thank you so much, and Thank you for listening. Goodbye.